It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Sean Duffy. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Tom Shalou. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 8th, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. After voters decriminalize small amounts of drugs, Oregon lawmakers say they need to reverse course on that following large increases in overdose deaths. The way to get them into rehabilitation is to have the capacity to hold them accountable. I'm Dave Anthony. The Supreme Court will hear a big case today that could affect who we vote for this year. Whether Colorado and maybe other states can remove former President Trump from the ballot. These are uncharted waters, um, both for this particular point in time, but also just in American history. We've not had to explore this before in this in this way. And I'm Bethany Mandel. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In 2019, there were 280 unintentional opioid overdose deaths in Oregon. After a large increase in such deaths the following year, Oregon voters then passed Measure 110 in 2021. That decriminalized possessing small amounts of drugs, including drugs like heroin and cocaine. In 2022, there were 958 overdose deaths. And the data for the first half of 2023 shows the state was well on the way to eclipsing that number. Now there's agreement. Measure 110 isn't working and lawmakers want to reimpose jail time for drug possession. I don't think that we should criminalize addiction. But Democratic Representative Kate Lieber said of their proposal that could result in 30 days in jail for possession. We did remove a tool. And we are simply giving that tool back to the police. But Republicans like Representative Tim Knopp want up to a year in jail. You have a drug dealer who is literally getting paid and giving something, something that will potentially kill them. And in fact, many times does. And so I think there should be a higher penalty uh, for that. Ahead of a legislative session that began Tuesday, lawmakers heard from people who assessed Measure 110. The Secretary of State's audit manager, Ian Green, told a legislative committee last month that most providers who offer drug treatment in the state haven't even spent their Measure 110 grant money. There was no clear pattern on the low spending, so we inquired with providers what barriers existed for them to spend these funds. The most commonly cited reasons were difficulty hiring staff and high housing costs. Burn providers also cited a lack of funding stability and limitations on client referrals. Dr. Andy Menenhall, president at Central City Concern, said there just aren't enough resources. We don't have enough services. The health care costs themselves are unsustainable. And it's truly unacceptable to watch people get worse and die. It's unacceptable as well, and we see this at Central City Concern all the time. We watch folks get worse, and then they offend, resulting in a stay at the Oregon State Hospital, or, in, or they go to prison. So is adding jail time back into the equation here the answer to addiction? And what's been the real impact of decriminalizing drugs? The disaster has been that folks from other states who want to have easy access to hard drugs know that they can come to Oregon and that under the current system, there is no accountability. Kevin Mannix is a Republican representative in the state of Oregon. And we have, unfortunately, the sad situation of folks who are drug addicted using drugs in public, 
There is no opportunity for law enforcement to be able to intervene and to hold them accountable other than to stand there and write them a $100 citation, which they can hand to the drug-affected person. That drug-affected person has no sanction other than, well, if they don't call this 800 number, they might have to pay $100 someday. Well, the reality of collecting on that is ludicrous. And we found that the 800 number that folks are supposed to call to get direction as to treatment is hardly ever used by anybody. So we've created a system of no accountability. And we also, as part of that, have failed to fully implement solid rehabilitation programs, which we definitely need so that we, if we have true compassion for those who are using hard drugs, we need to make sure we do get them into rehabilitation. The way to get them into rehabilitation is to have the capacity to hold them accountable. And we'll get we'll get into that in a little bit. But have you? I assume I assume you've all heard. I've heard. One of my best friends lives in the Portland area. Um, I assume you've all heard from business owners, residents. What have they told you about? I guess the the picture, um, what they're seeing and experiencing, especially in downtown Portland. As it, as it relates to crime and homelessness, you know, maybe in maybe not caused by this decriminalization, but at least correlating to it. Well, I think the decriminalization is a significant causative factor, which has triggered uh, a population of homeless people. It's not the only cause of the homelessness, but it is uh, certainly making it much worse. And my best example is a conversation I had this morning with someone who is a resident of a Portland suburb who told me, I won't bring my kids into Portland anymore. I'm worried about what they're going to see, the garbage in the streets, people hanging around, the dangerousness of those people. Um, it's, uh, it's like going into a third world country in terms of the streets right now. And that is a terrible, terrible situation that we need to remedy. Well, it sounds like both sides of the political aisle in Oregon do want a remedy, and it sounds like um, both sides do want to uh, reimpose some some jail time. I guess the question is how far each side wants to go. Is it easy to overturn a voter initiative um, with, a, with a vote of lawmakers? Well, I think the important thing is that the voter initiative was really about us dedicating the marijuana tax dollars to drug rehabilitation. Uh-huh. And the, and we are maintaining that. In fact, we're making it work more effectively through this legislation that's pending, making it more effective and more efficient. So we're fulfilling the main thrust of the voter intent. The second part of the voter intent, there was not much debate about the decriminalization. It was sort of whispered as part of this initiative. And what we have found, what I have found, is voters meant that, well, we don't want people spending years in jail because of uh, drug possession, but they no one had realized how the lack of any accountability would lead to the terrible situation we're facing now. And so voters have told me, I've changed my mind. I, I want something done. And we are co-equal with the people. I'm a great believer in the initiative process, but um, the vote of the people on the ballot is a legislative act by them. We are also the legislature and we can take action. We should approach any vote of the people that's passed with caution. Here we will fully implement what they wanted, which is uh, let's have strong rehabilitation services, but at the same time, let's work out an accountability system that allows us to deal with the deadly hard drugs that are now on the streets in Oregon.
I understand overdose deaths increased 70% or close to 70% in the first two years after this measure passed. So from like 2021 to 2023, are, are you sure this is entirely due to decriminalization, that number? Or is it because also, or at least in part, that so many drugs now have fentanyl in them? And that's a nationwide uh, problem. The use of fentanyl, the availability of fentanyl, the infection of other drugs with fentanyl to try to amplify the effect of those other drugs, those factors are all there. But the most dramatic factor here is that you can openly be engaging in drug use and there are no sanctions, there is no real accountability, and that unfortunately has encouraged additional drug use. It also has meant that the drug traffickers, and I'm talking here about the criminals who yeah. are you know, trafficking drugs for money, know that this is a market where they have a ready market available of customers who are not going to be held accountable for their use. So we've opened the door to this expansion of the death rate. And again, there are other factors at work, but I think the fact that we're not able to hold people accountable for drug use, even in public places, has, uh, has exacerbated the situation significantly. I was just going to ask you about that, actually. Um, because opioid-related overdose deaths have increased all over the country, um, and leaders in every state and even counties and cities are, are pointing to the border. Do you, do you look at the border? Do you feel that? You, I mean, you kind of just hinted at it, right, that, that you've created, you feel, with this decriminalization, a, a situation that's sort of an open invitation to um, those trafficking or selling drugs. Um, are, you, are you paying attention, I guess, to what's happening at the border then? Well, we're certainly aware of what's happening at the border, and that's certainly an area where our federal government needs to be um, taking strong action. But in terms of the 48 states of the continental states in the U.S., leave out Alaska and Hawaii because of the distance factors, we're dealing with a situation where Oregon is the most lucrative market for the traffickers that have brought the hard drugs into Oregon, including fentanyl, into the United States, including fentanyl because they know that they've got customers that don't have to worry about being accountable for using it. You feel that there's evidence there that makes you guys, that makes Oregon the place where they make the most money or that it's the most lucrative because of that? It is the most lucrative. We have a secondary border crisis. We have the border crisis with Mexico. The secondary crisis is the Oregon border, where if you're a trafficker and you cross the border into Oregon, You've got a ready market where the purchasers and the users know that they are not going to be held accountable. And that is unique among the 48 continental states. And sadly, that tells the traffickers, this is a place where you can find more customers. Okay, this act that was approved, Measure 110, it's also called the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. It sounded like, um, per a Secretary of State's office audit, um, that was talked about last month, that those who qualify for grant money to provide treatment and recovery aren't using the money. And they are citing things like difficulty in finding people to work and that being linked to high living costs. Has enough of an effort, and I think you've alluded to this already, has enough of an effort been made to properly get people into treatment and actually let this measure do what it's called? 
Well, the real problem there is the Measure 110 also changed the structure for distribution of money for rehabilitation. Now the money is going through large statewide organizations without strong local connections. And part of our effort here is to reverse that process and have much more locally based programs available and to make sure the money is infused into those programs. They are more cost effective and they are more efficient in terms of addressing the issue at a local level. So your local counties and cities will be back into the capability themselves to address this using some of this money. Right now, they've been left out of the mix. Do you think there's a way to fix Measure 110, or or is it is it done? Like, do, do, does is jail time just needed, or or could there be like a situation where you're more nuanced, like criminalize just fentanyl, or phase out jail time as long as there are treatment programs and counselors and resources available? You know what I mean? Like, is is jail for for drug use the only answer here? Let's understand that a person who is drug addicted per se is a person for whom we have to have compassion. And as part of that compassion, we also need to understand that we need to have a system where, yes, we can require them to get into treatment. And the law enforcement system is a significant tool for that. Without the law enforcement element, it is much harder. That does not mean we should have drug-addicted people languishing for a year in our county jails without treatment. It means that we have to have the opportunity to press them into treatment. I'll use driving while intoxicated as an example. In Oregon, that's a Class A misdemeanor. But on the first event, you can go into a diversion program and have your your alcohol issue addressed and cleaned up. And then that charge is set aside. Something similar is what we need to do in regard to street drug use. Oregon Republican Representative Kevin Minix, thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Bethany Mandel with your Fox News commentary coming up. He's facing four criminal trials this year, but former President Trump remains the Republican frontrunner in his bid to return to the White House. I consider it a great badge of honor. That's what he's been telling supporters at rallies. Because I'm being indicted for you. Now there's another attempt to derail his candidacy. And it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court, where today the justices will consider his appeal to a Colorado Supreme Court ruling that's currently on hold that disqualifies him from being on the 2024 primary ballot, claiming he violated a provision of the U.S. Constitution by taking part in an insurrection, the 2021 Capitol riot. The same reason Maine's Secretary of State, a Democrat, has also removed the Trump name from the ballot there. And President Biden agrees, telling reporters in December... He saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, and let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. Now, the Democrat-led House impeached the former president for inciting an insurrection a week after the Capitol riot, but the Senate acquitted him after he left office. Now, Republican Congressman Matt Gates says... The very experts who often get on television and talk about securing democracy seem to be the first to want to then remove a candidate from the ballot because they are afraid that he is too popular. Today, the Supreme Court considers whether the former president can be disqualified. That would effectively disenfranchise millions of Americans who want to vote for the candidate of their choosing here, that being Donald Trump. Carrie Urban is Fox News legal editor. There is a federal statute that addresses insurrection head on. The former president has not been charged under the statute anywhere. And it's notable that DOJ and Jack Smith, special counsel, who's currently prosecuting Donald Trump over January 6th related offenses, did not bring the charge of insurrection. So so first and foremost, he's not been charged with this anywhere, nor has he been convicted. And the former president is arguing in his brief before the Supreme Court that he did not engage in insurrection. And, and in fact, he points to the fact that the court primarily relied not just on the report, but on the actions of others, on the mob and the crowds who did what they did at the, on the Capitol grounds. And he would point to, and he did in his briefs, the fact that he said to peacefully go home and the like. And so that's where that particular argument lies. Another question is whether or not this Section 3 of Article 14 of the Constitution relates specifically to presidents, because it Mm -hmm. talks about uh, someone who had sworn an oath to the Constitution and it blocks them from holding office again. But he claims, and his lawyers claim, he's not an officer as president, so therefore it doesn't apply to him. Does that make legal sense to you? And that's the argument that he's leading with, because if you take a look at the actual text of the Constitution, I'm looking at it right now, and anyone can pull this up and look at it as well. Yes, that Section 3 under the 14th Amendment says that no person shall be you know, president and a number of other things um, if they previously took an oath as an officer of the United States, and they list other things as well, and then engage in insurrection. And the and Donald Trump is arguing, well, this section doesn't even apply to me because I'm not an officer. Presidents are not officers for purposes of the Constitution. They appoint officers. Well, this all dates back to right after the Civil War, correct? I mean, that was the whole goal of this provision of the Constitution. Am I right? 
Mm-hmm. It does. It, it, that's that's where its historical roots are. They were trying and to prevent Confederates from having important roles again. That's correct. And another thing is, if you take a look at the text of this section, and this is an argument that Donald Trump's making as well, is that it says no person shall hold this office if they've engaged in insurrection. And so Donald Trump's saying, well, this is about office holders, not office seekers. I'm an office seeker. And this section does not speak to that specifically. Okay, so what I guess that if you parse that down, that it doesn't say that he can't run for president. Right. That's exactly right. That's one of the arguments. In fact, there was a very interesting amicus brief filed that made that point pretty strongly. That he can be a candidate. Then, but, mm-hmm. but, but okay, but let's let's go down this path. <laughs> yeah, well, he this says he can be really a candidate. Messy. Yeah, he can be <laughs> yeah. a candidate. There's the, right. why he can't be barred. What if he wins? This is where it gets you know incredibly complicated, and I can't even imagine the ramifications if one was to go down that path. And so it's going to be very interesting today to hear what the <laughs> what the Supreme Court has to say. I expect a lot of questions uh, along these lines, uh, given that these are uncharted waters. Um, both for this particular point in time, but also just in American history. We've not had to explore this before in this in this way. There have been arguments for the movement to remove him from ballots mm-hmm. that the courts and conservatives have said, look, we're all for states' rights, that the Constitution lets states have rights. So if the court doesn't allow Colorado to do what they're attempting— that they would be hypocrites for not letting the state have the right to do what it wants to do. This is, again, where I think it gets very tricky in that, okay, fine, but what's the process? And that's why if you go back to the section under the Constitution, it talks about um, there's a congressional procedure that takes place if this was to, once this is found to be the case. And so what I've seen argued is that if... Congress wants to find Donald Trump guilty of insurrection and therefore not eligible to be president of the United States, that they need to pass legislation in order to make that happen. That isn't that's a pretty prevalent argument out there right now. Whether it holds water before the Supreme Court is a different question. A lot of times the court likes to make narrow rulings, not broad ones. How could a court decision in this case limit it to just say the Colorado issue, but not be universal for all the states. I would imagine the Supreme Court recognizes the gravity of this particular case and its implications elsewhere. And I'd be surprised if they rule in a way that is very specifically limited to just the facts in Colorado. Now, you're right that they do like to rule narrowly normally, but I think they could hone in on whether or not this section even applies to a president of the United States, whether or not a president for purposes of this section, is considered a, quote, officer of the United States. And that's a way to do it narrowly, but would have the national implications that are, quite honestly, probably necessary in order to ensure a stable election and the process. There is another Trump case that also may reach the Supreme Court soon. Related to his federal indictment on charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, a D.C. appeals court on Tuesday rejected his claim that he has absolute immunity from prosecution for all official acts taken while he was president. That Trump appeal has already prompted the judge to postpone a March trial date, and he has until Monday to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court. The former president posted on Truth Social before the Tuesday ruling, if immunity is not granted, every president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. It's significant in that... 
it can potentially, you know, on one hand, there's a balance of play. And this is what the and this is what the court got into in their decision. They said, look, we're balancing criminal accountability against a president's ability to govern effectively and not have to be basically looking over their shoulder and, and thinking about, will I be prosecuted for this once I leave office? And they say here, uh, these are rules uh, that that Trump violated laws of general applicability, criminal laws, and therefore he's not immune and we're going to treat him like any other criminal defendant. But it's pretty significant in terms of what it means for potentially opening the door for political prosecutions or persecutions going forward. The argument was, or one of them is, that uh, he shouldn't be charged with a crime if he was never impeached by the Congress or even removed in a trial by the Senate. But let's just say a president does something that went afoul of the law, but he had support enough in Congress to keep him in office, and politically they didn't want to remove him, but he still committed a crime. I mean, don't we run into an issue there? Well, I thought that was probably the weakest argument that the Trump team made. I think that, uh, you know, there I think there are 30,000 foot approach, which is that if you do not grant presidents immunity for acts, whether they're official or not, during office, you're going to run the risk of the second that person gets out of office for their political enemy to go after them. I, I think that's a very common sense argument. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand that. And I think that that holds um, water. And the court here said, well, you know, we don't think that's going to be the case because, look, here we are on this and this hasn't happened before. So we're not especially worried that anyone's going to abuse it. I mean, personally, I think that's a bit naive, given how the justice system has been operating over the last several years, especially when it comes to Republicans versus Democrats. And so while that, you know, is maybe how it should be, it's not how it's been. There are quite a few people who think the that the Supreme Court may not want to touch this one. They just let the D.C. court opinion lie and let it go. Is that what you think might happen? <laughs> you know, it's so hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do or not do. They could say, you know, it's not um, at a stage where they're ready to get involved. Perhaps it needs to go to trial. And if and he appeals whatever decision, if it's an unfavorable decision towards him, maybe at that point they would weigh in. Um but, but at, at, on the other hand, though, it's such an issue of huge importance for not just this particular election, but the future of the presidency and, and the limits or not limits on a president's power that they may decide to get involved. But it's anyone's guess if they will or not. You know, the former president appointed three of the nine justices that are currently on the Supreme Court. However, he didn't get a lot of help from them in his 2020 election challenges. The court allowed New York investigators and Congress to get his tax records, didn't stop Democrats in Congress from getting the documents they wanted in the Capitol riot investigation, and they didn't get involved like he wanted them to do to help in the classified documents case, and that's another criminal trial looming. Just because you have conservatives on the court doesn't necessarily mean they're on his side on all these things. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. And also, you know, you, it only takes four yes votes for a Supreme Court to hear a case. And we don't know. So when the Supreme Court decides to take up a case and there are those, you know, they have the four votes, we don't know who those four votes are. But I'll tell you who does, who do, who does know who those four the votes are. And those are the nine justices. And they are, I'm sure, behind the scenes, taking temperature checks, figuring out what their colleagues are going to do. Because, you know, yes, on one hand, you might have a wing of the court that says that the D.C. Federal Appeals Court made the right decision in rejecting absolute immunity when it comes to uh, federal criminal prosecutions. On the other hand, you might have another wing who says, no, that's not a good idea. But no 
justice wants to be in a position of um, inadvertently making new law that they didn't want to be making in the first place. So there are all kinds of calculations that go into something like this. Carrie Urban, Fox News legal editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Bethany Mandel. What's on your mind? Ten years ago, when our firstborn was a new baby, she projectile spat up on my MacBook, delivering a fatal blow to my only computer. Newly living on one meager income, we couldn't afford to replace it. My husband agreed to let me use his MacBook, with the promise that I wouldn't use it around our baby, who would do her best impersonation of a fountain several times a day. Literally the next day, our daughter fried my husband's computer in the same manner she destroyed mine. My husband was not thrilled. This is an understatement. My husband, the saint that he was, never freaked out, though he would have been justified in so doing. He merely said through gritted teeth, I wish that you had made different choices. He moved on, never throwing it in my face in the last decade. He's never even told the story to anyone, let alone publicly, lest he embarrass me. Sometimes in marriage, a spouse behaves badly, like really badly. And part of being married is bearing that frustration of the behavior in a way that is not destructive to the relationship. Recently, a TikTok video from a very different kind of wife went viral. A woman named Hannah, who posts under the handle healing underscore Sadie, spent a week upstairs with her son, deciding inexplicably to isolate after contracting COVID in the year 2024. I have questions, but whatever. When she came downstairs, the kitchen was not in great shape. The video is pinned on her profile. She's proud of having gone viral with a rant seen by over four and a half million people about the state her husband left her kitchen in. The comments on the video went wild on her husband for leaving the kitchen in such a state of disarray and decay. Hannah made her husband the target of the entire internet, who used her story to claim that modern marriages simply weren't working. Inadvertently, Hannah did in fact highlight why many modern marriages are failing, but not because husbands don't ship in on household chores. Husband bashing and shaming has become an entire genre of internet content for modern women who on one hand demand respect in the form of cleaning the kitchen, apparently, but are all too willing to publicly disrespect their husbands, shaming them for the world to ridicule and despise. Women who claim to want a man to treat them well, but do not show that same courtesy in return. Some advice, put simply, you get what you give. That's not to say that all men or women would behave perfectly if just paired with the perfect spouse. But when someone, and let's be honest, it's usually the wife, complains publicly about their spouse, it's immediately clear that they in all likelihood have the spouse that they deserve and that they're asking for. They value the validation of internet commenters more than they value the sanctity, happiness, and longevity of their marriage. I don't pity women like Hannah, quite the opposite. I feel for their husbands. I shudder to imagine what it's like to live with someone who thinks so little of publicly humiliating the person to whom they have pledged their loyalty and devotion. Next time you see a woman publicly trading their marriage for likes and affirmation at the expense of their husband, say a quiet prayer for him. He's going to need it. I'm Bethany Mandel. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.